Our passage this morning is taken from the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 10 this morning. We'll look at verses 17 through 31, a well-known passage where Jesus gives us one of his most famous parables, maybe the most famous of his parables. Young Christians, young theologians, as we talk about this story, we'll meet a young man, a young rich man, he's called in the passage. And Jesus calls us a name that isn't very nice in the passage. So I want you to listen for it. What not nice name does Jesus call us? And what do you think? Do you agree? Is that what we are? Is that what we're like? Let's see if you can hear the name we're called. This is the good news of Jesus, even though he does call us names in the passage. And in this good news, we're brought out of death into life. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, Master, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now, Lord Jesus, we ask you to open our hearts and open our eyes we may hear and know and see your good news and how desperately we stand in need of it. Pull away from us all of the sins that cling to us and pry from our grip the sins that we clutch so tightly to. Give to us grace for all of this and joy in it as well, knowing that in Jesus we lack nothing. And the things that we so greedily depend upon in our lives. They just drag on us. And they don't really do for us the things that we believe. That Jesus, the lover of our souls, will never mislead us. Press this into us more deeply this morning. And for it we'll give you thanks. 
We ask all of this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Be seated. Well, I'll be honest, I envy the rich young man. I envy him his estate and his mansion and his weight staff and the rolling lawns on his property with the horse stables and the vineyards and the wine cellar and the infinity pool. And I envy him his vacation homes, one in the mountains, one on the coast, and his yacht and his garage full of sports cars and his instant table status when he shows up in the doorway at the tonier restaurants around town, and I envy him the wad of bills that takes up permanent residence in his pocket. In the news magazine I read every week, there's a section in the back pages that's titled, And for those who have everything, and this week's selection was a flying car, A road-ready car with fold-out wings. All you need is a valid driver's license and a sport pilot's license and $250,000, and suddenly traffic isn't a problem for you anymore. And earlier this summer, they were selling a private submarine, a two-seater with a digital camera and a periscope at the dorsal fin. It can hit 50 miles an hour, and it can launch itself from below like a fish breaching the surface, and I want one. It only costs $81,000. I don't care. I want one. And where would I pilot my own private submarine? Who cares? Who cares if I never take it out and it sits in my driveway? I just want the thing. And this man is like that. He's the guy who buys all this stuff, whether he uses it or not. If he doesn't have it, he wants to obtain it. And if he doesn't have it, he knows how to get it. And I want his life. And yet, for all that he has, something's missing. And that's what brings him out to find Jesus on this occasion. There is a glimmer of humility in him. That's why he asks the question of Jesus. But there's also a wall of pride in him. Because for those who live in the category of people who have almost everything, when they discover something that they don't possess, it's usually just a, a formality in obtaining it. It's a matter of process. And that also is what brings him out to find Jesus. Jesus, tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life. How do I get my hands on it? How do I add it to my personal collection? I think he's assuming it should be a fairly easy acquisition. Something within reach. All of life has gone this way for the man. And you can tell just in the way he approaches Jesus. Because the young man has social skills. He knows how to talk to people at the top of the food chain because he is at the top of the food chain. Now, Mark's gospel doesn't call him a ruler, but other gospel writers do. And we don't know what that means, but we do do know that it means he had influence and pull. He had some social standing. And you get a sense of it in the way that he talks to Jesus. There's this decorum 
and this dance that you engage in to get things done if you're at the top of the social ladder. There is a secret language you speak, a secret handshake. And so the young man calls Jesus good teacher. Uh, The rules of this game aren't foreign to us. We know how to play this game. Here's how it works. I flatter you and you flatter me. And that's what the man is looking for. He's expecting Jesus to return with something like noble ruler. He's probably expecting Jesus to pull him aside and with a slap on the shoulder assure him with something like, listen, a man of your wealth and standing in the community, a man with your breeding, your pedigree, your family name, don't sweat it, you're in. But Jesus isn't a flatterer. He's a savior. He will never flatter you. He will only save you. And he says to the man, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Are you saying that I'm God? Are you saying you recognize me for who I am? You see that I am from the Father. I am the Son of God. And are you saying that you need me as God's son? Or are you using me for leverage? Are you trying to cut a deal? I think it's the second, and I think that's a cheap trick, and it ain't going to work. You have social skill, and you're smooth. I'll give you that, but there's one thing you lack. The young man doesn't mention his wealth. Luke doesn't say much about it either. Jesus seems to comment on it. So from all that, we take that the man's wealth is obvious. He's wearing the uniform of the wealthy. He's wearing the styles, the brands, the tailored cuts of the rich. Too many rings on his fingers, gold bracelets. Maybe he has the marks of plastic surgery. His Jewish nose has been whittled down to look more classically Roman. But whatever it is, the crowd knows that he's wealthy. And the man is probably expecting Jesus to play on it. Be a philanthropist. Build a synagogue. Build a few. Build a dozen. Write one of those oversized checks. Pose for a picture on the front page of the paper. Eternal life is just one sizable donation away for you, my friend. But Jesus isn't interested in money much to the chagrin of haters and accusers of Christianity and televangelists and faith healers too. You have money, Jesus says, but you still lack one thing. So the man flashes his religious resume in front of Jesus when Jesus lists the Ten Commandments as a portrait of someone who is truly good. Hey, the man says, no problem, I've kept the law since I was a kid. And he's probably right. He's at least kept the law as well as anyone else. And if you were to look at him, he'd be hard not to admire. This is the kind of guy you want to go to church with. Let's be honest, this is the kind of guy you elect to office in the church. Moneyed outwardly put together. 
we know he's not perfect. He mutters vaguely disaffected through the confession of sin, just like the rest of us when he comes to worship. But his personal imperfections are hard to spot. They're hard to point out. Maybe he's expecting Jesus to sort of brush past all of that by saying, go to seminary. Up your religious training. Go to rabbinical school. Become a Pharisee if you aren't one already. Become a teacher of the law. Help others revere the law the way you do. But Jesus doesn't say anything like that. He says, congratulations on your law keeping. It must feel good. And you seem satisfied. You have a lot going for you. You have standing and you have money. And you're a superstar of the synagogue. Good for you. But let's try this. Go sell all you have and distribute the money among the poor. Give it away as alms. Ride through the city, throwing fistfuls of bills from your limousine as you drive through the streets. And when there's no more money left, throw the limo keys to the first bum you find living under the bridge. And then come follow me, because you still lack one thing. And with that cryptic saying, we leave the passage with all the sadness of the rich man. It would be a terrible mistake to agree with Andrew Carnegie floating in his pool. Carnegie was the Scottish-born American steel magnate, fabulously wealthy, the author of all kinds of charitable trusts, A friend once asked Carnegie about his spiritual beliefs. I have no religion to speak of, he said, but on Sunday morning when other people are going to church, I like to float in my swimming pool while a Highlander in full dress plays sacred music on his bagpipes. And as I lie there in the water thinking over my possessions, the conviction comes to me that if a commission were sent down from heaven to assess what I have, I should be deprived of a great part of it. It would be taken away, he said, if a delegation from heaven came to see about it. Like so many passages in Scripture, this one is incredibly easy to misread. We handle the Bible in ham-fisted ways. We have no sense for Jesus' subtle touch. In our tin ear hearing, it seems like Jesus is presenting himself as a harder, harsher Moses coming down from on high with a steeper, sterner law. And in this new law, money is so dirty and so hated that the mere possession of it is detestable enough a thing to get you locked out of the kingdom forever. Let's be honest. Those same Carnegie fears float through our hearts. So Jesus seems to come off here like a heavenly Robin Hood or the sheriff of Nottingham. He's a holy repo man. But Jesus isn't a taker. Jesus is the bringer of the gospel. An otherworldly generosity so large We can't give it to ourselves. So all-encompassing, it's too much to take in all at once. 
Jesus hasn't come to take our much and leave us with nothing. He has come to take our little and give us far, far more. And that's what the rich man is asking for. I have this nagging feeling that I don't have eternal life. How do I get it? And Jesus is holding it out to him. You lack one thing. Yes, I know. That's why I'm asking the question. How do I get it? No, 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 no. You don't understand. Find the thing that you're lacking and eternal life comes with it. Eternal life comes inside it. And to find what you lack, all you have to do is downsize. Get rid of everything you depend upon and come follow me. This is a very important adjustment to our reading though. Crucial even. The gospel is not a heist. It's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But the thing of it is, to get the gold, when you spot the rainbow, you have to chase it and leave everything else behind. And the only thing that stands in our way of that is, (laughs) well, and so Jesus tells one of his shortest and most difficult and most renowned parables. He does it in a single word picture in verse 25. And the telling of the parable, he calls us by the unflattering name we've already hinted at. Camels. Stubborn. And stupid. And anything but sleek. It would be easy to say, no, 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 we should read it more tightly and say that he's only calling the wealthy camels. But I think it reaches beyond that particular socioeconomic demographic. The disciples hear themselves swept up in the parable too because they say, then who can be saved? We must be camels as well. And I think Jesus calling us camels is a pretty accurate picture. It fits us fairly well. We don't want to go where we're led. And we dig in our heels And we carry the loads we're given resentfully. And we make a terrible racket with every step. And to get from here to there, from our kingdom of brokenness and unbelief and arrogance into the kingdom of grace and life that doesn't run out, life renewed. To get from here to there, all we have to do is thread ourselves through the eye of a needle. In other words, because our hearts are as misshapen as a camel's bulk, it's an impossible relocation for us. There have been all kinds of attempts over the years to soften the passage. Interpretive claims that there was actually a gate in the city wall of Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, a very tight squeeze. And to pass through it, a camel would have to be unloaded and forced to kneel and pushed and pulled and whipped and cursed through the narrow passage. But see, that sounds more like law than gospel. And that's just the sort of thing the young man is hoping to hear. It'll take effort. It'll take strain. But with hard work, you can make it through. That's what he wants to hear from Jesus. But he doesn't hear anything like that, so he goes away disheartened, heart sunk. By pitching an out-of-the-question scenario, 
See, my rich young friend, what you're asking is like the largest animal known in Palestine passing through an opening so small you have to close an eye to line it up. An opening so, so tiny only a thread can clear it. By pitching an out of the question scenario, Jesus is holding out the gospel as the only answer to the man's need and question. Salvation is a miracle, he's saying. And you'll never make such an impossible fit. And the disciples wring their hands and pull their hair out over it because they know they can't make the impossible fit either. But Jesus says, I can carry you through the eye of the needle. And that's the amazing part of the passage. Jesus never takes the needle's eye away. He just leads a parade of camels through it. The gateway of impossibility, the impossible doorway that Jesus brings us through, the eye of the needle that Jesus insists on, is shaped like a cross. And as he brings us into eternal life through the tight fit of his cross, it's the only door. It's it's a tight, difficult squeeze to come in through the death of another. A, A death which requires our own death along with it. As he brings us in through the tight fit of his cross, all of our idols, all of our false kings, the ones we love to serve, our fake gods and goddesses, the ones before whom we bow and worship, our sham protectors, our counterfeit saviors, our talismans, they're all knocked off our backs. They are the burdens that can't fit under the cross beams and they get hung up on the nails and they're dangling there, useless and unneeded and screaming to be retrieved. The eye of the needle that Jesus brings us through is shaped like a broken tomb. And as we pass through that constricted doorway, it's not easy to go from a life misspent and misused into deserved death and then all the way back into life as we were meant to have it and live it. Not an easy passage. As we come through that constricted doorway, it knocks off from us all the things that we cling to for dear life. But they're things that look like death and smell like death and rattle like death and have the clammy, heat-stealing feel of death in them because there's none of God's goodness and none of His glory in them. The eye of the needle that Jesus squeezes us through is His love that looks and feels like death and resurrection. Which brings us back to the one thing we lack along with the rich man himself. Jesus told the young man, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. The young young man went away sad. He, He would lose a lot. He would lose all of his wealth. We think that's his big hang up, but there's more to it than that. Loses power and influence and standing, the ability to get things done. See, his, his name has importance attached to it. And all of that is stripped from his name if he gives it all away. A sense of security, he'll probably even lose his family. In the ancient Near East, holding together the estate, the resources, the properties, the holdings of the family, that's what kept the extended family itself together. 
And in the midst of all of that, Mark, among the gospel writers, says, Jesus loved him. And I think that's the key to the passage. If I give all this away, no one will love me. People love me because I have money. People love me because I have a name. And if I give it away, there is no one who will love me. I think the context proves for us that this is what the passage is about. The story just before is the story of children brought to Jesus to be blessed. And they're being driven away by the disciples. And Jesus is furious. And he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. Another parable about coming into the kingdom. And what do you need to get in? Ah, the opposite of a rich man. No power, no status, no resources, no wealth, no authority, no ability to get things done. A child stands open-handed with arms outstretched, needy. A child's only hope is to be loved. And that's who the kingdom belongs to, says Jesus. Those who are desperate to be loved by the true and perfect lover... And then, at the end of our passage, Peter has an unusual moment of insight. Good to see Peter get one right every once in a great while. But Peter says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And with this strange list in verses 29 and 30 of all the things that Peter and the others have received back in losing it all for following Jesus, Jesus is saying to Peter, And Peter, have you not been loved? You've left it all, but have I not loved you? Have you come up short even once on love as you have followed me? The one thing you lack is the one thing I've come to give. Love. Not a vague, general love, but redefining love. A love that demands everything because it gives everything. And that's why the rich man is told to sell it all off. Give it away. Come follow me and let me alone love you. Come be rich in my love and my love only. That is the greatest wealth there is. But the rich man couldn't fit the expensive love of Jesus into the accounting of his life. What I love about this passage is that along with the rich man, Jesus finds us in all our favorite hiding places. All the places we love to hide ourselves away because we're convinced we could never be truly loved. So like Adam and Eve, fig-leaved and cowering, we duck behind religious law, rule-keeping looking good when we come together on Sunday morning. All the commandments I've kept since my youth, in other words. Or success and achievement, bulging resumes, or or grades and performance and doing everything right, getting high marks in everything that we do and touch, giftedness and ability and proficiency and skill. It's not just that we have these things and we use them for others, but we stake our whole identity on them. We'd be crushed if they were ever taken from us. There'd be nothing left of us if we ever lost them. Intellect. I'm too smart for Christianity. I don't need it. 
I'm too smart for Jesus himself, maybe. There's even a warped intellectualism inside the operation of faith. Having all the right answers. A particular disease in our tradition, our denomination, maybe our church. I know lots of people who have all the right answers. They really do have all the right answers. The problem is you can have all the right answers and still be a jerk. You can have all the right answers and not be worth crossing the room to be spoken to. And then I know people who who have the right answers. They really have the right answers, but they hold them differently. They hold on to them as assurances of the depths of the love of Jesus to them. Worlds different. Maybe you hide behind health and fitness and appearance and strength or food, the sanctuary of taste and feeling full or no food and a program of self-starving, a stark and serious measure of control, a granite discipline that doesn't even buckle to hunger. Or a sense of justice. A craving for justice that this retributive hurt be pressed on those who have afflicted you. Or the quest for a relationship that follows the script that you've written out for it. Or, of course, the old standby. We could hide behind money. The ability to buy our way into comfort and the ability to buy our way out of failure. And how do I know if I'm hiding behind these things? I mean, really hiding out behind them. They may be disproportionate for me, but but how do I know that it's as bad as you say it is? There's an easy diagnostic. Ask yourself if you're willing to walk away and leave it behind. And if you put up even the smallest fight, if you catch yourself white-knuckling it for even an instant, you're hiding because you don't believe that Jesus can truly love you. It's hard to teach an old camel new tricks. But for Jesus, the solution is simple. Follow me and keep following me. And we know where he'll lead us over and over again, continually and endlessly, through the eye of the needle of impossible love to the cross where we die to what we have been, where we die to what we were. He'll lead us through the eye of the needle into impossible love to the open tomb where we're remade to be more like Jesus himself. But look, whether you struggle to believe these things as a Christian and as a disciple, Jesus' own disciples were struggling and wrestling with these things. Or if you struggle with them as a skeptic, you're struggling to grab onto even just a thread, a strand to believe in. You want to believe, but you're stuck. The answer is the same for both groups. Follow me. Hear what I say to you, Jesus is saying. Hear my word. Listen closely to it. Begin to believe it. Put your weight on it. See if it's durable. See if it holds you up. As you do what my word tells you to do, see if you are held up. Trust my heart more than your own heart. Trust my way more than your own way. Rely on my love for you, my impossible love for you that looks like nothing you would decide on for yourself. Trust my love for you more than you trust your own self-love. 
But the key in it is, you don't have to be convinced of the love of Jesus all at once. As we follow him, he convinces us of his love step after step. As we follow him, he shows us how he has carved his love out on the beams of a cross. He's written it on the inside walls of a tomb that will never permanently seal over us again. I sat on a beach and read a novel this summer. It was set in the Everglades about a family who owns a theme park, an alligator wrestling farm. And one of the main characters, the oldest daughter of the family, who's 16 years old, falls in love with a ghost. The ghost of a young man who's died in the swamp decades earlier. And she runs off into the heart of the Everglades to find the door to the underworld where she will marry her ghost groom and live with him, if that's the right verb, forever. And her younger sister is terrified by all of this. And so she chases her older sister into the heart of the swamp to rescue her from herself and to bring her home. That's outlandish, isn't it? It's kind of far-fetched. Who would marry a ghost? You would, you camels. But the gospel is, Jesus chases you into the heart of your swamp to lead you through the eye of the needle, to bring you by his impossible love all the way home, and there the vapors of all your favorite ghosts melt away. And if you have ears to hear, hear and believe. Lord Jesus, forgive us for thinking that we can't be truly loved. And in bold and desirous and unflagging love for us. When we were unlovely and unlovable, you hanged yourself on a cross and broke out of a tomb. And this is love enough. Take away all the places we would hide ourselves. Take away all the props we would rest our weight on. Give to us instead only your love to rely upon. We'll never come up short. We'll never come up empty with your love. Instead, we'll find ourselves rich. Our sadness is our own. It's brought upon us by ourselves because we continue to clutch these things thinking we need them. Little by little, at the cross and the tomb, pry our fingers open take these things away and for it all we will rejoice in the inheritance you have given us taking our little and leaving us with far far more do all of these things for us and again you'll have our thanks we ask it in the father and the son and the spirit